Our scripture reading this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men following him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. My name is Sam. And are my on? Yeah? No? Yes? Yes? Good? Excellent. Hope you have your Bibles. I know we put the verses up on the on the screen, but... That doesn't uh, replace, I think, the importance of having your Bible to make sure what we put on the screen is legit. And also, sometimes I will reference things. And so, uh, bring your Bible. We've got free Bibles back there. Um, there's several things we want to make sure that, that you see, that anyone sees when we worship here. A, our love for Jesus, the centrality of Jesus, the cross at the center of everything we do. And secondly, and really they're about the same thing, is the love of God's Word and the authority of God's Word and upholding God's Word. So we read God's Word, we sing God's Word, we preach God's Word, and so I pray you have your Bibles with you. So we're in Matthew chapter 9, and this is a larger chunk than we've gone through, but we're going through verse by verse, and uh, we'll be done some year. But in working our way through this Gospel, uh, we have spent, I think, probably like the last two months in chapters 8 and 9. And that's because I added a bunch of sermons, which I tend to do. And prior to these chapters, so prior to 8 9, before that, we heard um, a huge chunk of teaching, 5 to 7, of Jesus' um, Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most um, you know, comprehensive kind of chunk of teaching in, in any of the Gospels. And we heard him teach and we heard him preach about the kingdom of God and how uh, the citizens of the kingdom of God look differently. Uh, and live differently and think differently and and it's not it wasn't a, a prescription of what you have to do to get in the kingdom it was a description of what happens to somebody and how they're changed in their perceptions and how they even their disposition towards sin by nature of being saved by Jesus and so chapters eight and nine though are different in that they have very little direct teaching of Jesus they have very little teaching about the kingdom and they're really full of a miraculous or a bunch of miraculous demonstrations of the power of the kingdom. And so you've seen just miracle after miracle after miracle, all these things happening. But the miracles of chapter 8 are different than the miracles of chapter 9. Matthew's a tax collector. He's very organized. He arranges this gospel very intentionally. Nothing in there is accidental. Nothing is just kind of like, oh, I think I'll throw this story in there. He throws his own conversion in the middle of some of the miracles, showing us that he sees the the calling, the conversion of, of one individual of him from a tax collector to someone who is killed for his faith as a miracle. And so chapters 8 and 9, though, differ in, differ in their miracles in this. Chapter 8 deals with, with people that nobody would touch but Jesus, right? Lepers, people like that. No one wanted anything to do with them. And now we see chapter 9 deals with that nobody but Jesus could touch. So some no one would touch, and no one but Jesus could touch. Men who are blind, 
People are dead. Now there's a common thread that kind of connects all of these passages in 8 and 9 together, and that's this, this word or this concept called faith. If you just follow along in your Bibles, I'll just indicate a couple of verses, you'll see how it just kind of pops up, keeps popping up. Starting in chapter 8, verse 10. Right, a Roman centurion comes to him. And what does he say to him? Truly I tell you that no one in Israel have I found such faith. We get into 8, verse 26, when his disciples, right, they're fearing they're going to die in the storm. And Jesus sleeping in the stern, and they are scared, and they wake Jesus up, and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus' response to them is what? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then 9, verse 2, when some friends lower a paralytic down through the roof for Jesus to heal because there's too many people to to get him in through the crowds. The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith and He forgave the paralytic sins. And he heals him. And then in 9, verse 22, what we just heard Jason read, when He heals a woman of bleeding, who had been bleeding for 12 years, Jesus says to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. In 9.29, when Jesus heals two blind men, He says to them, according to your faith, be done to you. I think there's a pattern here. Right? I think Matthew's trying to communicate something. He didn't record these statements in order to make Jesus' acts more miraculous. Right? Raising someone from the dead, causing a blind man to see, I don't need the word faith in there to think, wow, now that you put that, that's really amazing. Right? No. He wants us to to learn something. He wants us to see something. This connection between the restoration of our minds and our bodies and even our souls and faith in Jesus. Healing in every sense of the word does not simply come through hard work or moral prescriptions, or magic formulas, comes through faith. So our question, your question should be, what is faith? Like, what is faith, really? Now, if you've been a Christian for a amount of time, and you've spent some time in the, in the Word, most Christians, when they answer that question, they'll quote Hebrews 11.1. 1. You may have heard that verse before. It's a great verse. It says, now, faith is... Okay, here we go. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Okay. Well, there you go. That's faith. And then you read it again and you go, what did that say? Now, it's kind of confusing, actually. It's a, little, it's a little ambiguous. Like, what exactly is faith? Okay, it's, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay. Helpful verse. A little bit ambiguous. And here's why, because as I was thinking about it this week, there are many things that I can hope for, things I don't see yet, that God never promised me. So it can't just be something I'm hoping for. The problem is that most of the things that I naturally hope for, let's be honest, right? The things I really hope, like I get, hope go away, hope change, those kind of things that I naturally don't have to think about, these I hope for if I'm just honest about it and it's coming out of me without trying to impress anybody. Most of the things that I hope for that I, that I can see with my flesh, for lack of a better term, they're not necessarily of God. They're not things that God has promised. It doesn't mean they're woefully sinful things. But God's promises are seen by the Spirit. Not just by the flesh. Paul says a phrase that doesn't really help, but it maybe pushes us down the path a little further. He always is speaking about walking by faith, right? Second Corinthians chapter five, he says, "We're to walk by faith, not by sight." All right, I'll do that. What's that mean, right? We kind of pretend we know what it means. We tell people to do it, but well, you just need to walk by faith which means trust 
in something that you don't see. Don't use your sight. I believe that God's promises, as I said, are not like the world's promises. And all of God's promises, all of God's promises, that's a big word. In Greek it means all. All God's promises were realized in Jesus Christ. Paul said in in 2 Timothy 1.1 that faith was trusting in God's certainty of what Paul calls the promise of life in Christ. The promise of life in Christ. So though we don't see Jesus right now, He's made us certain promises and we trust in them and we trust Him. I like how Peter says it, though you have not seen Him, right? I, don't, I won't ask you to raise your hand to tell me if you've seen Jesus, okay? Though you've not seen Him, Peter speaking, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what I'm going to argue today, or or maybe put forward today, is what I think faith is in a more tangible way. I believe faith is living and seeing and walking according to particular beliefs about Jesus. Certain convictions about Jesus. Convictions you can't map out on a chart. Convictions you can't see in the flesh because Jesus is not there in the flesh though He is here in spirit. But convictions and beliefs about Jesus. Not faith in your job. Not faith in another relationship on this earth. Not faith in anything in this world. But faith in certain truths about Jesus. And so, I think all these miracles that we read and all these verses reveal three things. That faith is believing Jesus can restore faith is believing Jesus will restore, and that faith is believing only Jesus can restore. Okay, so I'll go through each one of those, so you don't have to like, what did he just say? Go through them all. First one, faith is believing that Jesus can restore. That He can restore. Now, in verse 18, He is most likely either coming out of or still in Matthew's house having had a big party. He was teaching about the newness of faith and how it's different than religion, how Jesus and religion, they don't mix. You can't have the Jesus Plus program, it's just Jesus. And he says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter's just died. But come and lay your hand on her. Okay, My daughter's just died, but come. And lay your hand on her. She will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciple. Okay. So, Matthew, Mark. If you turn to Mark chapter 5, you'll see the same story, and it gives us a little more detail. Mark's a little more colorful. Okay. Matthew tends to ch- ch- cut stuff off a little bit. Mark, in this particular story, gives us more detail. We find out in Mark chapter 5, I believe it's verse 22, and around 20 verses after that, we find out that this guy's name is Jairus, this ruler. He's a ruler of uh, the local synagogue. He has a 12-year-old daughter. That's how old she is. And in Mark, she is just deathly ill. She hasn't died yet. But Jairus comes to to Jesus and says, "My, my daughter is incredibly sick. Would you please come and heal her? And Jesus agrees to come and He follows him as he's going back to his home. And the record of the Gospel of Luke, which is, again, same story, different man telling it. Luke chapter 8 has the same kind of record. And what it says is that before he gets home, before they get there, one of his servants or someone from his house comes and says, hey, by the way, your daughter died. Just let Jesus go. She's dead now. You don't need for her to come or need Jesus to come the rest of the way. Don't bother him. Don't trouble the teacher anymore, I think is what it says. And so I want to remind us all of something. Because as parents, if you're a parent, you know what it's like to be bothered. Not that you should be, 
but you can easily be bothered by one of your children, right? Interrupted by something that's important to you. Let me tell you that Jesus doesn't function the same way us sinful parents do. Okay? When Jesus' children come to Him, it is never, ever a waste of time. Jesus never considers time walking with broken-hearted people, in this case a dad who's lost his daughter, a waste of time. Jesus never views the cries of the hopeless as an interruption. Jesus is never bothered when it seems like His mission is delayed, like He's got more important... He doesn't have more important things to do. He wants to spend the time with you. Rejoice in that. Be comforted in that. You can't just bother Jesus. Jesus actually says several times in the Scriptures to pester Him with prayer. Bother Him with prayer. So when the guy comes and says, hey, you know what? She's dead. He can't do anything. Quit bothering Him. What does Jesus say? He turns to the probably devastated father, right? He had some hope. He had some, some semblance of hope still. Okay, Jesus comes. I've seen Him heal people and they're they're walking. He could heal her surely. Walks up. She's dead. How does he feel? Devastated. But what does Jesus say? He turns to him. Don't fear. Don't fear. Only believe. Only believe in all. She will be well. So what does he tell the man? He says, have faith. Have faith. Just believe. Just believe. This is emphasized, I think, even stronger in Matthew's Gospel because there the record just states the man initially approached Jesus with his daughter dead. And Matthew intentionally wrote that. Obviously, it wasn't complete. She did die. She was dead when Jesus was on His way. Far from a contradiction, I think Matthew wants us to focus on, on what the man believes about Jesus as He comes. Jairus says in that passage in Matthew, my daughter has died, but if you come, my daughter is dead, but if you come, Jesus, and you touch her, she'll live. He says, I have lost what I love most. I have lost something incredibly precious to me, but if you come, Jesus, She'll live. Jesus, I believe. This is what I, I think He's saying. I believe. I know You can bring life. I believe You possess the authority, Jesus. I believe You possess the wisdom, Jesus. I believe You possess the power, Jesus. And though the world tells me it's over, that it's hopeless, that it's lost, but You can, Jesus. You can Think about this man, right? He's thinking, what I have, and it's literally, what he has is dead, cold, lifeless. But he's hoping in Jesus' touch. He's hoping Jesus will come and make it alive. And this man has a faith that should probably convict most of us Christians. If you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to have this faith. But as a Christian, I know it convicts me. Because how many of us really believe that that deathly situation we're in, that thing that is dead in our life, that Jesus can? That Jesus can? I was reminded of a passage in Mark 9, which I think is incredibly telling for this. Jesus is talking to a father whose son is possessed by an unclean spirit and has been for some time. And Jesus asks his father in Mark 9, verse 21, he says, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Listen to what he says. But if you, speaking to Jesus, but if you can do anything, 
have compassion on us and help us. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes, he said. It's a really simple question. Do you believe Jesus can? Faith believes that Jesus can. Faith believes that Jesus can restore life to that which has died. And this isn't a call to pray for physical resurrection. But there is another form of resurrection that Jesus promises. And we will have our physical resurrection and complete restoration, but for now, there are many things in our lives that die. Think about this. For some of us, you think, my self-worth is dead. But if you come, Jesus, my marriage, man, it just feels dead, lifeless, cold. But if you come, Jesus, my joy for life, man, it's just dead, it's cold, it's sterile. But if you come, Jesus, my friendship, that relationship, that family relationship, man, it's just dead, lifeless, cold. But if you come, Jesus, if you follow it into this Jesus, if you touch it, Jesus, it will be made alive again. Faith is not just believing that Jesus can for you either, it's believing Jesus can for others. Like Jairus. It's a willingness to plead for others. You have that family member that's been lost for years. You have that friend that boss. When was the last time you brought them to Jesus? I don't mean bring them to church. I mean going to Jesus and saying, please Lord, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. But if you come, my kids and I have begun a regular practice of praying about three, four times a week of just praying for salvation. Because I found myself not praying for that often enough. Not praying for my neighbors. Not praying for my family members. Just to know Jesus. Whose lives look so dark, so broken, so rebellious, so opposite of anything. I go, I don't know what's going to... Well, I guess Jesus can. I've seen it. Whether or not you believe Jesus can, I think is most revealed when what is most precious, that thing you love most, dies. Then we will find out whether you believe Jesus can or not. Or maybe you will find out. We either believe like Jairus, right? Trusting that Jesus can. Or we believe like Jairus' servant who thinks Jesus maybe doesn't want to be bothered by this. With Jesus, here's the big secret, right? Dead and lifeless does not mean dead and gone. Dead and lifeless does not mean dead and gone. So that hopeless situation that is going into your mind right now, that hopeless person you think, man, they are just going down a path. They are dead. Jesus can't. Have you asked Him? Come. They're dead. There's always hope. There's always hope that the touch of Jesus will come and just go, oh, She's only sleeping. Boop! Wake up. You ever seen someone come alive with Jesus? That's what it's like. It's like, bam! Whoa, Jesus. That's it. I've seen it in recent weeks and months. It's amazing. And you know what it requires? Not you to have a perfect little Gospel presentation. Not you to be able to have every Bible answer they have. But you just to take that person to Jesus. Would you just come, Jesus? So faith is believing Jesus can. Alright? Now, second part. Faith is believing that Jesus will restore. Right? He can restore, and Jesus will restore. Now, I know where your mind goes when you think that. Jesus not only can, Jesus will restore, but to clarify, when I use the word 
will, I don't want to imply that Jesus will restore every single thing we ask Him to. What I mean by that, Jesus intends for our faith to be one that trusts Him even when it seems that He is not willing to restore what we asked Him to. His biggest goal is for us to trust Him. Now, if you've heard of Paul the Apostle, right? He wrote like 13 letters of the New Testament. He was the man who was walking on the road to Damascus ready to arrest or kill Christians. And Jesus showed up and He went from murderer of Christians to martyr for being a Christian. That's Paul. Unexpected meeting with Jesus. Didn't look for Him. Jesus grabbed Him. Changed His life. But... God desired for Paul to remain in an unrestored state. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read it. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He says this, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Right? This is a guy like met Jesus face to face. You might feel kind of attempt you know, you know, I met Jesus. Like you might get prideful about that. You might he had received all kinds of revelations. Jesus himself taught him the gospel. Might Make you get puffed up a bit. So it says, in order to keep him humble, it says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. What is he? Lord, please take this away. Please take this away. This is harassing me. This is painful. This is horrible. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something. But Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all more gladly of my weaknesses, the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Jesus can, right? Jesus will, but it doesn't mean He will restore anything you ask to because Jesus doesn't, or I should say, his biggest intention and goal is to restore your dependence upon him. To be leaning on him, to be trusting in him, even in the midst of our weakness. So, when we say Jesus will restore, it means something else. That kind of dependence that we're talking about, the kind of dependence where I depend on Jesus in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of things harassing me in the midst of praying for it and it won't go away. I believe it's that kind of dependence is birthed out of Jesus' willingness to come and embrace you in the midst of your dirt. What do I mean by that? Well, look at this other miracle. As Jesus is on His way to restore Jairus' daughter, as He's on His way, a diseased woman approaches and says, from behind Him, which is important for Matthew to write. She's afraid to actually confront Jesus face to face because she is unclean in every sense of the word. Now, it says that she suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years, meaning she probably bled from the womb. And Leviticus 15 said that if a woman has a discharge of blood of many days, Beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall, shall all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Now that was a major deal. Okay, she was unclean in Israel, unclean to participate in the community, unclean before the Lord, unclean. So this chronic uncleanness made her more than likely an outcast. Everyone probably knew who, was she, who she was. It's doubtful she was ever married, which means she was probably destitute, pretty impoverished, and certainly living with the stigma of childlessness. This woman was spiritually unclean. She was physically unclean. She was socially unclean. She was unclean in every sense of the word. And so, full of shame... She approaches Jesus from behind for fear that He would be made impure if she touched Him. She wants to grab His cloak so He doesn't know. 
believing that if she touches his cloak, she'll be made clean. But knowing if she touches his cloak, he makes, she makes him unclean. So she's afraid. So she sneaks up behind Jesus to touch his purity. Desperate for his touch. Believing his touch will heal. Believe that if she would just touch his cloak, she would be healed physically, but also she would be cleansed of all her shame. And so she risked it. She risked making him unclean. Now in Mark's record of the same story, right? Jesus is like, who touched me? Who touched me? Now Peter, who's called the rock because he's got a head full of them, says something to Jesus. He's like, seriously, Jesus? He's like, you're surrounded by a crowd of people. We're all like bumping around. You want to know who touched you? And Jesus is like, someone touched me. Power went out of me. He turns around because it seems like he's making a scene a little bit. And this woman comes down before him in fear. Trembling. Because she knows, she's been healed. But she knows what she's done. And she, what is she scared? Scared that Jesus is going to be like, you dirty, unclean, away! Right? Because that's what a religious guy would do. How dare you touch me? Do you know what you've done? She falls down before him. She tells him what she's done. She tells him the truth. Everything that happened. But what does Jesus say? Instead of rebuking her for making him unclean, which didn't happen because his cleanliness purified her uncleanness. He says, daughter, your faith made you well. Your faith made you well. He embraced her uncleanness. It's the idea of faith is believing, right, that I'm not unworthy. At least not unworthy enough for Jesus to go, ooh, no, I mean, there's sin, and then there's sin. Like, that's just a little too dirty for me. That's not what Jesus does. His reaction shows us that Jesus, and this is where we have to believe, we have to believe and trust that Jesus is willing to get His hands dirty to restore us. You know, a lot of us have a lot of dark secrets in here. I know we do. I don't know them. Maybe your friends don't know them. Maybe your family doesn't know them. But Jesus knows them. And you're so fearful to let anyone else know. But really, you're fearful that God... He knows. He knows. And He's willing to restore you. He's willing to cleanse that shame. Some of us have dead things we want to be made alive. And some of us are dead on the inside, right? There's kind of two kinds of dead. All too often I think we're so afraid that I'm just too different or I'm too dirty or I'm too deficient. And in this we see we don't approach Jesus in fear. We don't need to. He knows our shame and it doesn't anger Him like a tyrant and grieves Him like a father. Jesus is not ashamed of us. Jesus is not embarrassed by you. Jesus loves unclean, dirty sinners. And He doesn't turn or run or even shudder at the dirt. On the contrary, the cross shows us how deeply He would experience shame so that He might remove it from us. Jesus is willing. Jesus is willing to restore. So when I say Jesus will restore, there's nothing that's unrestorable. So Jesus can... Faith is believing He can. Faith is believing He will. And now, faith is believing that only Jesus can. This is an interesting one. Do you believe that only Jesus is the one that can restore? Well, see, just because you believe Jesus can, that He has the power, that He has the authority, just because you believe that He is willing to restore our hearts, He's willing to get dirty, He's willing to... to embrace our shame and embrace our brokenness and touch us where we are most dark and most ugly 
doesn't mean that our hearts are not prone to wander to some other Savior. Read the story of the blind men. It helps us understand this point. It says, He passed on from there. Two blind men follow Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And when He entered the house... Okay, did you catch that? Walking. Have mercy on us, Son of David. And He keeps walking. And then it says the blind men enter the house. So there's a space there. It's important. It says, when he entered the house, the blind man came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And that's similar to saying, because of your faith. Not by the measure of your faith. We'll see how well you do. Okay, you got kind of good vision now. No, it's just because of your faith. Their eyes were open. So, the title Son of David is a Messianic title. It's a title that was ascribed to or identified with the promised Savior, the Messiah, the King. In Isaiah 35, it's an Old Testament prophecy that describes the age of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, this is what it's going to be like. And what it says is that the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In other words, these guys believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they believe so much so that if they can be touched by Him, He will do these things that the Old Testament says will happen. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. If He's the Messiah, He'll have mercy on them and He will restore them. What I find strange, what we should all find strange, is that Jesus keeps on walking. He hears their cries and He passes them by. He doesn't stop to have a conversation with them. He doesn't heal them in that moment. But he continues on to the house where he's staying, which is probably Peter's house, we're not sure. But the blind men follow him, which may have been somewhat of a difficult task. Might have been a painful task. Might have been really, depending on where Jesus' house was from that point, might have taken a while. But these men follow Him and they come to Him in the house and they're convinced of one thing, that only Jesus can restore them. They put all their eggs in that basket, right? All their hope is there. If Jesus can't help them, no one can. So when they're before Jesus, He he says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now again, Jesus didn't have to ask that question. Matthew didn't have to record that question. But it's written for us to understand something, I think, about our own faith. See, when when you encounter unfixable problems, so blindness, that's a pretty unfixable problem. Okay, But take that figuratively to anything else where you go, I don't know how this is going to be fixed. This is an unfixable thing. This is something outside of the norm is going to have to enter into here. I wonder when you encounter an unfixable problem, if you consider Jesus to be the only solution. I would argue that He's often not the first one we turn to. Whether it's really a physical injury, whether it's a financial distress, whether it's a relationship that's broken, is your first thought, you know what, I'm going to take this to Jesus. Now you might think, I know Jesus can, He can fix this if you want, but I don't want to bother with something so insignificant. But what if you were to think that only Jesus can? That only Jesus is the one that's going to fix this because this is is an unfixable problem. See, what I think what usually happens when we get an unfixable problem, we either get angry or fearful usually, one of those two, and we get so angry and fearful that we usually begin to look for the solution somewhere else. And that shows us that something's happened to us. When you get so angry and enraged, when you get so fearful about some situation that's unfixable and you don't know what you're going to do, 
and you don't first turn to Jesus, let me tell you what's happened. Something or perhaps someone besides Jesus Christ has taken the title of your heart's trust. Of its preoccupation, of its loyalty, of its service, of its delight. Something has become more important than Jesus, more delightful than Jesus, more powerful than Jesus. If you are angry or fearful or anxious or hopeless, you have to ask yourself something if you're not turning to Jesus. Is there something too important to you? Is there something that you're telling yourself you have to have that you don't have in Jesus? Am I angry or fearful or anxious or hopeless because something that has become so important to me is actually being threatened? Something that's become a necessity but it's not, whether it be just something as simple as your control? And though you know that Jesus can fix your problem, right? I know He can. You're not convinced that He alone can. So when Jesus walks by, you may even cry out like the blind men did, right? When Jesus walks by, like, help me Jesus! And He keeps walking, you think, well, I guess He can't help me. So I'm not going to bother following Him. I'm not going to bother taking that few extra steps to go be with Him. I wonder how many times we pray for that unfixable problem once. And when the Jesus doesn't come through once like we thought He should, we go, well, guess Jesus doesn't care. I better find something else to fix it. I'm so impressed by the blind men. Blind men, right? Can't see. No Sinai dogs, Sinai camels, whatever it would be, right? No canes probably. Jesus walks by and they so believe that Jesus is the only one that can fix it, so I'm going to keep going. I'm going to find Him. I'm going to spend time with Him. These blind men see the solution to their problem more clearly than many of us who claim to have sight. Believing Jesus can is not enough. Believing only Jesus can will change how you engage in your faith. It will change not only how much you pray, but what you pray about. How often you pray. Now, let me close it off this way. We see this picture of faith of, of believing that Jesus can, of believing that Jesus will, believing that only Jesus can. And that kind of conviction, if you really get to that place of that kind of faith, that should make us bold. But I found that our, our fire is very easily smothered. When we believe that Jesus can, and when we believe that Jesus will, and we believe that, that Jesus only can, you will begin to experience heart restoration. But when you begin to experience that heart restoration, you begin to take all of your problems to Jesus, not just the big, major, unfixable ones. And you'll begin to bring all the people that you engage with that have problems to Jesus. Because you have come to the conviction that only Jesus is the one who takes that which is dead and makes it alive. Only Jesus is the one who takes that which is blind and causes it to see. Only Jesus is the one who takes those who cannot even speak and opens their ears so they can hear and they can speak. Here's what I think we'll end up doing. We'll preach a lot more and we'll pray a lot more. Now, why don't we? We are not a prayerful people. And I mean that in that we don't pray all the time. Like if you interact with someone, they tell you about a problem, how often do you go, let's pray about that right now? Do you do that? Guy's back's hurting. Guy's job is, is struggling. Marriage. How often do you go, let's pray, let's go. Let's go to Jesus with it. How often do you bring up God's Word? You know what the Bible says? We gotta believe. We gotta trust. We gotta. We don't do that. Why? Because we think it looks freaky. We're afraid. We're afraid that we'll experience honestly what Jesus did. What happened when he walked in? He goes, "The girl's just sleeping." They laughed at him. We're afraid to pray and, and to to be bold about our faith. They go, "Nope, Jesus can and Jesus will and only Jesus is gonna." 
And if we really believed that, we would start praying like crazy. Who cares about people's laughter? Or what else happened to Jesus, right? The last one I didn't spend too much time on, when the deaf man couldn't speak and they heal him, what do they say? Oh, you did that by a demon, right? We're afraid of misunderstanding. We're afraid of people misinterpreting what's happening. Oh, this is kind of too spiritual for me. We need to be more prayerful people, a people that truly have faith, a people who truly believe that Jesus is working and moving and restoring. And I mean physically, I mean emotionally, psychologically, financially, every way you can think of. We kind of have our little categories. Well, I'll take these pieces to Jesus. I don't read my Bible enough. I think I'll pray about that. As opposed to this being devastated or just an unfixable issue, I don't need to pray about that. I don't want to bother Jesus about that. Bother Jesus! Pray to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. But know that this, Jesus restores us so that we'll bring restoration to others. What do I mean by that? I can call us this now, Restoration Church, so the sign says differently. Restoration Church. Don't let Jesus' mission to restore all things stop with your own restoration. Don't let it stop with your own restoration. Have you ever read the beginning of the book of Acts? It says, my first volume that I wrote, this is Luke writing, you know what he says? He says, in the first volume I wrote all that Jesus began to do. And now he's in volume 2, saying this is what Jesus is continuing to do. Jesus is continuing to restore by His Spirit through His people. He restored us so that we could restore others. But if we don't have faith, we don't believe that Jesus can. We don't believe that Jesus will. We don't believe that only Jesus can. Why would anybody else? The truth is, there are others who are lepers. There are others who are sick. There are others who are possessed. There are others who are paralyzed. There are others who are spiritually dead. There are others who are blind and cannot hear. And we're the body of Christ, the Bible says. We are designed to touch, literally and figuratively. You cannot help a leper. You cannot help a blind man unless you're close enough to touch them. To bring healing to them in Christ. Without question, there's certainly something powerful about touch. Yeah, I think we need to hug a little bit more. But, there's something infinitely more powerful about the touch of Christ. And even if you're close enough, you have to believe that your touch, whether in word or deed, has the power to do something miraculous. Has the power to save that neighbor who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Has the power to take that marriage that doesn't feel like there's any hope or life in it and bring it to life. You have to believe that. That is the Spirit that is at work within us. The power of Jesus that is within us. That is the hope that is within us. That is the love that is within us. That is the light that is within us. That is the mission that we have before us. We're not called just to sit on a restoration and go, I'm healed! Woohoo! We're called to go and heal. We're called to go and preach. We're called to go and pray. And if nothing else, I ask that as we see Jesus kind of give us a picture of faith, we will be challenged to pray more. To bring our unfixable issues to Jesus more. To bring our shame to Jesus more. Because the more you do that, the more others will. And we'll see healing. We'll see miracles. We'll see transformation. We'll see glory. We're going to take communion this morning. We take it every Sunday. And people go, why do you take it every Sunday? Because Jesus told us to. That's the answer. Now, second point. We are celebrating the fact that we have been restored. And though we may not experience it fully now, we don't experience complete physical restoration. How do I know that? We're all going to die. But there will be a time when we, we experience it completely, but others can experience spiritual restoration. And those who come to the table recognize that I have been restored by Christ. And if you have been restored by Christ through faith in the cross that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, not just as an example, but for your sins, and rose from the dead to give you new life, you are coming to the table believing you have a new life. And in a new life, what do you believe? That Jesus can. 
that Jesus will, that only Jesus can. And you put all of your trust there. You cannot put all your trust in Jesus Christ to restore the unfixable, broken, dead, lifeless problems in your life. Don't take communion. Don't go through the routine of we just do this as a church every Sunday. It's part of the practice. No, this is the most important part of the service. This is the declaration of the Gospel and your conviction of it. Your belief in your own restoration and belief that others can be restored in the same way. We'll sing two songs. You come and you get the elements for you and your family. And then after two songs, we'll take it together because it's a family meal we share because Jesus didn't just die for one person. He died for a people. And we are the church, the family of God, and we will be the ones who boldly proclaim restoration in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You humbly asking You to help our unbelief. Just as You told the Father with the unclean Son, asking Him if You could to believe in all things were possible, and the Father responded, help our unbelief. We ask You, help our unbelief. Father, we sometimes question whether Jesus really can, whether He really has the authority, whether He really has the power. Would You show us, would You give us confirmation in our hearts deeply and deep conviction that Jesus can no matter how hopeless, no matter how lifeless, no matter how broken and dead, Jesus, if He touches it, can bring it to life. And would You give us the conviction to believe that Jesus will, that no matter how unclean, no matter how dirty and shameful, that Jesus will embrace it, that Jesus will love us, that Jesus wants to save us, He knows every dirty secret we have, and He just calls us to confess and admit what He already knows. And give us the deep conviction as we raise this cup and we celebrate by taking of the bread, your broken body, that it is only Jesus who can save. That our hope is not in some Savior. Our hope is not in more money. Our hope is not another person. Our hope is not in some better job. Our hope is not in some freedom from some terrible situation. But our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ. Help our unbelief and help us to sing with the joy of a people who have been restored. A people whose hearts are made free. A people who have been, shame has been removed. A people who have been cleansed. Let us sing with that joy. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.